Welcome. I'm Melissa Durda, and this is Synergo's Cultivate the Soul podcast. Stories of purpose-driven philanthropy from around the world. Over this series, we explore together the intersection of contemplative practices, spirituality, philanthropy, and social impact. Join us as we dive into the personal journey of each guest and what they have discovered about the role of inner work on one's capacity to change the world. To learn more about each of our guests and view our full episode list, please visit synergos.org slash podcast. My name is Ajay Dahia. I'm the Managing Director of Philanthropy at Synergos, and I cultivate my soul by imbibing a spirit of serving others. Today we are joined by Ajay Dahia, the Managing Director of Philanthropy at Synergos. Ajay was born into a working class immigrant family from India. When he was in his late teens, a deep spiritual calling led him to become a monk, where he spent almost a decade in service, spiritual practice, and deep reflection on how to realize a healthy, equal, and just society. He transitioned out of monastic life to lead a number of mission-driven organizations at the forefront of consciousness and social change. Ajay's full bio is available on our podcast website. Ajay, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Surreal honor. Thank you for inviting me. So I'd like to get us started by asking you about something that I'm so curious that I just read in your bio about how you, in your late teens, decided to become a monk. What inspired you to do that? And how did this experience shape you? Yeah, I think I decided actually way before my late teens, but I lived in England, so legally I could only wait until I was 18 to actually join the monastery. But how that came to be was my parents had immigrated from India to the UK, and they were very working class. They grew up in villages, and they were the only ones of their family who had left. And so their cultural connection to their homeland was a temple. And when you'd have to drag other kids in, you'd have to drag me out. There was something about the environment itself that just it captured me. I, I can remember vividly the first time walking into that temple, and the smells, the environment, the sounds, everything about it. And just it captured my consciousness in a way that you know I struggle to describe even now, decades later. And amongst the environment, the thing that stood out to me the most were the monks. And I found that there was something really special about them. Someone who dedicates themselves not to their own kind of position in the world, but to service. From there, I kind of started a love affair with spirituality. I started to meditate when I was, I think it was around 10 or 11. I heard that the monks meditate for two hours a day. And I thought, okay, that's what I want to do. So I started meditating two hours a day. And that's what I did for the rest of my life, at least up until this point. There was something about that to me. When I found out that these people lived here, and this is what they did all the time, I just, that was it. It became an obsession to me. That's what I want to do with my life. I can't, you know, and people around me went down the traditional route of you go to school, you get the degree, you get the job, you get the the kind of spouse and the children and everything else. But what I saw was that all of those people still, there was something in them that felt incomplete. They were still looking for the next thing. And with the monks, I didn't find that. And I started to realize there's something special in giving to the world rather than taking from the world. You know, I would cut school. You know, most of my friends would cut school and do things that I won't mention on your podcast. But I would cut school and take a train for an hour to go to the temple just to clean the floor. And to me, it was like the coolest thing in the world <laughs> to be able to do that. So that's how it came to be. It just it enamored me to see that as a human being, you could position yourself in such a way that you dedicate your life to serving others. There's something magical about that. Well, that's beautiful. Can you tell us a little bit more about what service looked like during that period of your life? Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, you know, my 
early teens, it was very simple. Like I would go there and clean the floor and the building was in the center of London. It had two flights of stairs, I remember, and I think it was six, maybe five stories each side. So I'd be on my hands and knees with a cloth cleaning the stairs. This humble service, a menial service. No one's going there saying, hey, you're a special person. You've really made it in the world. You're cleaning set stairs. But internally, it was quite magical for me. And just over time, it grew. I became very close to the head of that monastery in that temple. And he saw something in me that perhaps I couldn't see myself. And he started to engage me in assisting him. And so then I would come and stay on the weekends and help him with his schedule and also help him with some of the projects he was working on. And really the foundation of it all was just to reach as many people as we can to bring about um, a revolution of compassion in the world. And as I grew and I actually joined the monastery, I became his assistant. And then I started to travel widely. I have a bit of a obsession also with philosophy. And so I was always have a head in the, in, in the books, head in the clouds, some may say also. I'm more about the esoteric meaning of things. And so from about the age of 20, I, was, I became a senior monk and I ended up being invited all over the world to speak. And so my service then evolved rather than kind of doing things on a more physical level to doing things more on a psychological level and sharing some of the wisdom that I had gathered by my teachers. And then more importantly, bringing communities together. And that was one of the, the main things I would do is I would be asked to visit different communities who were struggling with their own kind of community building building deep bonds of relationship amongst one another and to assist them and to assist other monks who were going through challenges. So it evolved, but really the whole thing was just to become selfless and to offer whatever one has to offer. I truly believe that all of us have unique gifts that we've been given and to offer those back in service really is, that, that, that really is the definition of service. It's, it's to offer what's yours to offer to the world, to uplift others. Yeah. So can you give us a little bit more detail around what some of that community action looked like? What did the compassion and practice look like? How was it through your service you were able to start to see change? Yeah, I think the foundation of it all was just to build loving relationships with one another within the community. Because I think this idea of having a community means there are deep bonds within one, one another. In the kind of Eastern spiritual traditions, Hinduism, Buddhism, you hear this word Sangha a lot. You may have heard of it, Sangha. And oftentimes we take Sangha to mean like a group of people gathering an you know, association. But Sangha actually has a much deeper meaning. It comes from the Sanskrit root, two words. Sanskrit is an interesting language. But two words coming together, Sangati, and that creates this word Sangha. And in some ancient Sanskrit poetry, you'll find that that word is used to speak about the intimate exchange between lovers. And so what does it mean, Sangha? What it truly means is when that intimate exchange is taking place, there's no, you're completely at your most vulnerable. There is no barrier between you and the other. There's no show. There's no facade. Every kind of layer has been removed. And you're giving yourself fully to the other. And the other is giving themselves fully to you. And so this is the foundation of, of community. It cannot come from a place of inauthenticity. And so that means we have to bear it all to one another. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Our scars, our pain, our joys, our hopes, our fears. And so community building, to me, really rested on this position, again, of you're here to serve the other person. And whatever they bring forth to you, you should figure out how you use that to serve them, to unlock their higher self. And so, you know, how did that take place? It really did take place through, I was very famous for taking people on ice cream walks. Particularly when I was in New York, I found this wonderful vegan ice cream shop. And whenever there's conflict, you know, there's a saying, don't take it personally. And I would always say the opposite. I said, you should make this personal. And people couldn't understand what I meant. I said, well, this is a person and you're a person. And as persons, you have some conflict with another. But if you understand the heart of the person you're dealing with, then all these conflicts will dissipate. You'll understand it in context. And so I would take people to walk to this ice cream shop and we'd get a cone of ice cream like we were children. 
and we'd walk around the block eating ice cream, sharing with one another what was going on in our lives. And I just saw people melted, you know, they, they, because now I'm making you human. You're not the person who treats me like this, that, or the other. You're a human being who yourself has gone through things. So dialogue was a big part of it. But meditation's, you know, the, the foundation of everything in my spiritual tradition. Why? Well, because unfortunately we have multiple layers of ego throughout this life and I would say also many lifetimes. We've acquired ego and we have to remove those layers and through the practice of meditation, it helps that happen. And when you do that, then you can really live into being selfless in your exchange with others. So it sounds like your days of service began with physical service and just doing what was needed in the monastery where you began your life there. And you eventually moved to serving others more broadly in communities you know, you mentioned to me that you believe that everybody has their own unique gifts. Would you mind sharing with us what you feel your unique gifts are and how that might connect to what you see as your purpose in the world? Yeah, I think my unique gifts actually come through my disqualification in life. I'm completely disqualified in every realm possible. I'm undeserving of the grace that I've been given by others. And that really, I see that as a gift because it keeps me humble. I actually have no reason to be arrogant because I'm like the lowest of the low. But somehow or other, from that position, you know, I've, I've been given by others the insight to, to perhaps break some of the barriers that may exist when someone comes from a place of arrogance and ego. I have nothing to be egotistical about, and so that is a gift. And how does that help me in my calling? I really see that my calling is twofold, is to transform consciousness, my own and, and others, and to see that service is both the means and the end. It's the process, but it's also the goal. The more that I serve, the more that those layers of ego are removed, and the more that I'm able to then serve. And so it's this kind of circular causation. And my unique gift, in, in a more specific way, you know, I have a way with words, I think. <laughs> I think the audience can tell me afterwards and give me feedback on that. You know, I'm able to understand complex philosophical, spiritual points from thousands of years ago and and be able to understand how to apply that in the modern world, I really look for symbolism. What's symbolic in what's being said? What's the lesson that's beyond just the words on the page? I often say this to, to some of my students, because I still teach pretty actively, is that when you're approaching spiritual life, and you're approaching particularly spiritual literature and texts from, from years and years ago, different generations, you know, it's not about reading what's on the lines. It's about understanding what's being said between the lines. And that, in Sanskrit, is called Shastra Yukti. It means to understand the, the implication, the implied meaning. And I think you know, there's something there in which it becomes applicable everywhere at any time. It's not like, well, these are from 5,000 years ago. If you can read between the lines and understand the deeper principles, those are eternal principles. And I think that's somehow I've been gifted with some insight into that level. And I think, without sounding arrogant, I have a way to connect with people too. Generally in my life, people find me or seek me out when they're going through some crisis, crisis of faith or otherwise. And oftentimes what they tell me is that you're the only one I can just speak to openly about it and I don't feel like you judge me for it. You just kind of, you know, you're there and you, you understand what I'm saying and you offer some advice to help me move forward. Those are some of the gifts, I suppose. That's wonderful. Yeah, those are beautiful gifts to have and you're offering them to the world. And then somewhere along your journey, you left your monastic life and well, now we're working together at the Snergos Institute in our philanthropy work and we'll get a little bit more into that further along. But tell me about that transition and what inspired it and what do you hope to achieve? Yeah, it was a very difficult one, to be honest with you. I'm from the age of like 10 or 11, I wanted to be a monk and I became one at 18. I spent the next 10 years doing that. I was 
how that kind of transpired was I became very close to my teacher, a man called Radhanath Swami, who I'd known since I was a child. And when I became a monk, I was actually, I became his cook. He would come to London. He lives in Mumbai in India. And he would come to the UK two, three times a year and stay for a week at a time. And I knew how to cook. I learned how to cook when I was very young. And he had some health issues. There were people who knew how to cook very well. and It tasted great, but it wasn't healthy. And those who knew how to cook healthy, it didn't taste all that great. Somehow I knew how to do both. And so I became his cook, and so we became very close. And then developing our relationship, he asked me if I would come and travel and be his assistant. And I agreed. It was an honor of a lifetime, and we traveled all over the world. I mean, practically every corner of the world together. And during that period of time, he had asked me if I would go to New York. He had a project in New York, and he'd had it for a number of years. It was really struggling, just transitions and leadership. And he said, I just need someone to go there who I can trust. Would you be willing to go and like be the leader there. And I was 23 or 24 at the time. And I said, no, I'm good. <laughs> he brought it up every single day for about four months. And every day I'd say, no, I'd been to New York. I knew what it was. I knew the scene. I'd lived in cities. I didn't want to do that anymore. I was happy with him. And then finally, he kind of he convinced me. He said, why won't you go? And I said, I just want to serve you. I'm very happy here. I'm serving you like that. Because if you stay here, you can serve my body. If you go there, you will serve my heart. And so I was like, well, I can't say no to that now. <laughs> So I ended up in New York City and a beautiful six-story building in Manhattan, amazing potential of a project. And so we started to work really hard. We opened a restaurant and a yoga studio. We built the community. It really expanded to hundreds of people and really became one of the most innovative places in terms of our spiritual tradition of bhakti in the world, I would say. And so during that time, there were two things I started to see. One was that my service as a monk and my service as the leader of this project were coming into conflict with one another. Like I was very strict. I would get up at 2 a.m. every day. And now here I was. And it's like I'm dealing with money, which as a monk, you don't really do. I've got multiple things I have to deal with in terms of people. You don't generally deal with women all that much. But we had staff that also included women. And so I started to see I, I'm not doing justice to either thing, to being the monk or being the leader here. I'm kind of these things are coming into conflict. And then secondarily, what I realized is I became a monk at a pretty young age. I mean, I was 18. And Eastern traditions are ego effacing traditions. They're meant to remove the layers of ego. But the unfortunate truth is when you're young, or even if when you're not young, when you're immature, let's say, being a monk can get to your head. You know, you go places, people like bow down to you. They automatically, just because you're wearing robes, they offer you a certain degree of respect. You know, people fly me all over the world. And I started to realize my ego became so tied into this idea of being a monk that the very reason that I became a monk now has gone into the background. And I don't like that because I truly believe I want to transform who I am. And, and this was the way to do it. And now this has become the new layer of ego for me. So it became a kind of inner conflict in my heart, you know. So I put it forth to my teacher. And he said, you know, you should do whatever's going to help you serve the most. So I really meditated upon that. And I realized that I could serve in a particular way in the immediate moment. But in the long term, I mean, I have still have a long life ahead of me. Have, what's going to position me in the best way to serve? I realized that the best way to serve is to also now let go of this ego of being the monk. And so then I transitioned out of monastic life. And yeah, it was very difficult. I was on the other side of the world, didn't know anyone really, didn't didn't have a bank account, you know. And even if I had a bank account, it had no money to put in it. I had three sets of robes. And now here I am in New York City in Manhattan trying to figure out what to do next. And uh, and then I met someone very quickly after I thought, okay, I'm going to give myself a year. I'm just going to try and find my feet. But then two weeks, three weeks, I think after I left the monastery, I met someone who is now my wife and we got married three months later. And here we are seven years later. My service orientation really changed, actually, because now I was in the world. I understood the struggles. All the people that I was talking to philosophically and saying, well, spiritual life is like this, and you have to really see the world like this. I didn't understand their challenges 
from my early, before my teens even, I, I just hung out with monks. That's what I did, you know. I didn't know what it was like to manage a job or go through challenges in a relationship or to raise a child. And so my service I see has expanded now. It may not look the same. I may not be engaged with the same amount of hours. But the quality of what I'm offering now to people is different because I have that lived experience now. So when someone calls me and talks to me about how their child is being a rebel, I get it because my son's four years old. But trust me, he's a rebel. <laughs> so I'm learning my lessons. And yeah, I get to meet people like you and be in the world and kind of serve in a way that's broader. It may not seem as direct to some people, but to me, it's, it's the same thing. If I can bring the same spirit to the work that I do now, then it's spiritual work. Well, thank you for sharing that story of your journey. And now here you are working in, say, the field of philanthropy, social change. What do you see as the, the possibility for this field and this work that we're doing with our Global Philanthropist Circle members? Well, I think the possibilities are endless. I think actually everyone's a philanthropist. We just don't know it yet. If we take it back to the essence of the meaning, I think we have to thank the Greeks for that. It means love of humanity. And actually then the Romans, when they adopted the word, they augmented it in their own way. And they said, actually, this is what it means to be human. Philanthropy is what it means to be human. It means to give to another. And so I think we've seen, particularly now coming out of COVID, you know, two years of lockdowns, it's reawakened the understanding of how interconnected we are. What happens on the other side of the world doesn't just happen on the other side of the world. It impacts all of us. I think it was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And so it's the same thing with compassion. If people are uncompassionate anywhere, it's, it's a threat to compassion everywhere. And so I think what we've seen is the power of individuals now, like not to get political about it or what anyone thinks about the pandemic or any of those things. But the truth is we saw that governments were not the only solution. They were part of a solution. They were the stakeholders, but it was on all of us, you know. Everyone had to do their part. You have to wear your mask. You have to stay in your house. You have to social distance. And this idea that I am inherently responsible to the other people around me. I'm not like living in a silo, like this idea of no man is an island. That my well-being is dependent on your well-being. My health is dependent on your health. In the same way that the quality of my spirit is dependent on the quality of your spirits. And ultimately, I think, you know, while it may show up in different ways, isn't this what philanthropy is ultimately trying to point at? Is that we have an inherent responsibility within each and every one of us to leave the world a little bit better than when we came in. Yeah. Yeah. These are themes that we love to explore with our spiritual civilization group around our interconnectedness and our love for our fellow humankind, as well as the earth and its inhabitants. I want to read a quote that I found, something that you said that really resonates with also the work that we do, but I just want to also get maybe a little bit more from you on this. So you said, there is no meaningful activism, no lasting social change that can be accomplished without self-reflection. So often we harbor within ourselves the very things we dislike and want to change in others. To anyone who wants to improve the world, I say start with yourself. Tell us a little bit more about what that means to you. What that means to me first and foremost is that we have individual responsibility. It's very easy to go around and point out the problems in the world. I mean, I could do it all day long. If there was a career... If I could get paid for doing that, I'd be a millionaire because like, I could just do it all day long. I could just put on the TV and point out all the problems with this person or that person or this system or that system. But you have to go deeper. The systems, people, they're manifestations of deeper principles. And so if I look at the world and I see I don't like prejudice, well, then I should also look within myself and see how much prejudice lives within me. How much do I judge other people? I don't like hate. You know, I see hate in the world. I don't like it. Well, how much do I hate certain things, right? Like I hate this group because they hate other groups. Well, maybe I'm part of the same problem then. And so what I mean by that is this, is that we are part of the world within the world and the world is within us. 
So if I want to see things like racism, sexism, hatred, all of these things removed from the world, I also must look within myself. Because even if a trace of that lives within me, it doesn't matter what I do externally, it's still going to live on and it's going to come out again and again and again. And so to me, this is the most important thing. You have to take time to introspect if you want real, lasting, meaningful change. I think of my father often. He passed away many, many years ago. But my father, was a, he was from that generation. He was an avid smoker. It was the cool thing. Everyone did it. If you didn't do it, you were weird. So he was always smoking cigarettes. And I have a brother who's eight years older than me. And my father would tell me and my brother, both of us, don't smoke. Don't smoke. Smoking is really bad. But my brother, who was older, he started smoking. I didn't. Because when I was about... 11, maybe 10, my father had a heart attack in front of me. It happened in front of me. And I remember it was in his bed and on his bedside table, he had his cigarettes. And the first thing he did was he grabbed his cigarette packet, he scrunched it up and he threw it against the wall. And he never smoked again after that. And so what I saw is that while he was telling us not to smoke when he was smoking, he was being a hypocrite. But in that instance, when I saw he felt the pain of what it meant, the thing that he was telling us not to do, that pain became real for him because he was doing it. And in that pain, he was able to let go of it. And because I saw that, I saw he removed that from himself. Now I can take him seriously. And so also, if we want other people to take us seriously in our activism and our philanthropy, we should really take evaluation of how much of the thing that we're standing against, we're standing for internally within our heart and within our own consciousness. Because no one wants to be a hypocrite. And sometimes unconsciously, we become one. Yeah, these are all really good approaches that we also share at Synergos with the Spiritual Civilization Group, really looking at what we call looking inside ourselves and doing what we call inner work, really exploring who we are and everything from what our purpose is to also what our biases are and really trying to show up in an authentic way. Yeah, you know, inner work is, is such an important component of anything in life because just to be frank, we're all kind of broken people. I mean, let's be real. We we all have certain things within us, certain traumas we've gone through. And it could be something small. It could be something major. But that's there within us. And then we operate, we move through the world by trying to bring things from outside in to fill those holes. But through inner work, what you start to realize is actually I was always complete. The illusion is the feeling of being incomplete. And then you become so full in yourself. Your heart becomes so full that then you move through the world, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. What's within me now starts to flow out through my actions, through my words, through my dealings with others. I'm not looking at the world to bring something in now, exploit, let me take from you, Melissa, because I feel this gap, so you're going to stroke this kind of hole in my ego. But no, I, I realize I'm actually complete. I just have some shortcomings because I've gone through the world and I've got some scars in my heart. But once I'm full, my heart will overflow, and then I can't help but move in the world. Yes, I know. Bringing what we have within us outwards, not only with those that we know, but to communities we're working with and to the broader society. So I know you're you're relatively new at Synergos as managing director. You've been with us for, for several months now. So this might be, you know, a difficult question, but as you're imagining what philanthropy can be, what it can do, we're moving out of the world of COVID and we're shaping the world that we want to see in our future. How do you imagine this future and the role that philanthropy can play? Yeah, I think a lot of people coming out of COVID think, oh, thank God, it's time to go back to normal. And I'm saying, no, 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 normal is what got us here in the first place. And what we need to do is create a new normal. I think one of the things that really stood out to me during the pandemic was this idea of essential workers. I started to realize, well, hold on a minute. When did they become essential? Were they not essential before? The people who were stacking the grocery store shelves and taking care of your children and so on and so forth. Why are now all of a sudden they essential? They're essential because now you feel the pinch of them kind of not being around anymore. 
And so I think in philanthropy, it's very similar, is I think we can reassess what we think of as essential interventions now. I think the time of big philanthropy, I think there are certain areas where we need big philanthropy. I think there are also certain areas where we need grassroots interventions. And I think the pandemic has, I think, shone a light on the idea that everyone matters. And there are people who we kind of maybe ignore. There are issues that perhaps we don't really focus in on all that much. But now we're starting to realize, actually, that's also essential to a holistic approach towards philanthropy. So for us here at Sitagos, I think what, what, where we have the advantage is, is to communities like the Spiritual Civilization Group, is how can we bring philanthropists together in dialogue with one another, to have shared experiences and to become more informed about the issues that we care about from all levels, all stakeholders who are involved? How do we become informed in that way? How do we come in touch with one another as people who may have the resources and the desire and the spirit to make a difference? How do we become in touch with those who are most affected? Because they may have some unique perspectives and solutions. And how do we come together to be inspired? I think all three of these things take place within the um, prism of community. And so I think as we now come out of COVID and the world is opening up and our groups are starting to come together, I think this gives us a really unique opportunity to recenter ourselves as being in this together, to really take a collaborative approach to making a difference and to really listen to one another, hear each other's experiences and to grow together. It's a great opportunity before us. And I think philanthropy is really, at least in my lifetime, we've really seen the importance of it during COVID. We really have seen it, you know. And neighbors, you know, buying groceries for their other neighbors. Food pantries, I think, increased. I forget the number now. In India, I mean, you know, I have a special affinity for India myself. But during the, the second wave of the COVID pandemic, just to see how much money was mobilized from outside of India to help people in India to see neighbors coming out to support one another. That's philanthropy. They were philanthropists. You know, It wasn't what they gave in terms of dollars. It's what they gave in terms of themselves. The dollars are representative of, what, of ourselves. They're symbolic of I'm giving myself through this. And there's many ways to give ourselves as well. That's some of my uh, thoughts on that. Well, I love it. Very exciting time and moment for us working in the field of philanthropy, of social change. And I definitely look forward to working with you on all of these issues. How can people learn more, perhaps about Synergos, but I also want to put forward to you if there are any resources, books, anything that you recommend that people connect to, to kind of learn more about these topics that you've shared with us today. Well, I think the, the best resource to connect to is yourself, first and foremost. I often say this, you know, a lot of activists need to sit down and meditate, and a lot of meditators need to stand up and become active. And I think we have to bridge these two gaps. So I think that's the biggest resource. Search your own heart. Find the thing that you're passionate about. Find the thing that really kind of moves you in the world, and then do something about it. It doesn't have to be anything big. It can be something very small. You know, where do you feel tension points and pain points when you go through life? Well, maybe someone else is feeling those. Can we support and serve them? I'll give you a story, if I may, at the end. So I used to live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I have a dog. Weird, I don't have a dog. Me and a dog, share. we share our lives together. And I would take her for a walk every day, and there's this one gentleman, I think he was houseless, I think he's the homeless, however we want to say it. And every day I would walk by him, and it was almost like I, have, I, I don't want to look. You know, I'd walk by him and say, I don't want to make eye contact. I just want to get on with my morning walk. I don't want to. And so then I would go, I'd take my dog for a walk and I'd come home. And then one day I was in the grocery store and I was waiting at the counter. And the person behind the counter was talking to someone else. She didn't even acknowledge that I existed. She didn't smile at me, didn't wave at me, nothing. And I just felt, I felt this pain in my heart. I was like, hold on a second. Like, I am a human being. I exist. I'm st just acknowledge me. And then I drove home. I just realized, oh my God, I do this every single day to this guy that I see. Every single day, I do the same thing. And this was a great lesson to me, right? It goes back to what we spoke about earlier. I felt pain because someone ignored me, yet I ignore people all the time. So then I just made it a principle that every morning I would say good morning to him. 
and I just learned about his life. I learned who he was. That came about because I searched my heart on that car ride home. I looked at the resource within myself to see, I felt pain. Why did I feel that pain? What, do other people feel that pain? Is there something I can do about it? That's one thing I'd say in a more esoteric way. I tend to live in that realm. On the more practical space, I think, you know, Synagos, we have many events that people can join. I think our collaborative communities is really a space that people can come in, learn more about the work we're doing. This mixing of um, inner work and outer action, this kind of nexus point, which I think is extremely important to philanthropy. And books, I, you know, to be honest, I, I, I don't have a list of books that I could, uh, I could offer. But again, you know, think of the people who inspired you in life and then learn about them. Find whatever books are there. And history. The thing we don't really think about or read about too much anymore, but history. If you read history, you'll be able to tell the future. You'll be able to see where were the where were the issues within society in the past, because those issues still exist now. And you'll become more informed about them as you start to move forward in the future as well. Well, thank you for sharing your story, sharing these ways that we can connect to ourselves and reminding us how important that is. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much and uh, look forward to working together. Me too. What I loved about this conversation with Ajay was learning about his story of service, how it evolved from his time as a monk to being of service to communities, and how we can all serve as philanthropists in a post-COVID world.